the fire and then the plumb line. And this morning there's still more visions of judgment, the sum of fruits in chapter 8 and the altar in chapter 9. Uh, the vision of sum of fruits is a pun on the Hebrew word, for the word means summer fruits and it also means the end. It works in English to a certain extent because the summer fruits are the ripe ones at the end of ready for harvest and harvest is such a natural image of judgment. And so Israel is coming to an end. You see it there in verse 3, we're on page 931, 931, in verse 3 of chapter 8, the song of the temple shall become wailing in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies, they're thrown everywhere. Silence. For Israel has become the unjust society, such as we read in verse 4, hear this you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. It was a society that lived for the mighty dollar or whatever the currency was in that day in that age rather than for the good of the people or for the honour of God. They couldn't wait for the Sabbath to be over before they could start trading again and in their trading they had no concerns for the needs of the poor or even for the justice of their fellow citizens. Throughout the book of Amos we've kept on seeing the parallels, the great similarities between the state of life in Israel in the 8th century BC that God so condemned and the life of Sydney in the 21st century. There is such pressure on our politicians today to do away with all public holidays, to do away with community days, to do away with holy days so that we can trade and trade and trade our retailers are under such pressure and they pressure such governments that we do not have those days, Sunday trading, night trading, morning trading, 24-hour trading is what the traders really want in our land and of course it's always the little people who have to forego their family time and their holiday time so that the wealthy can get richer and richer out of the trading that they do. So it was in the 8th century BC, so it is in the 21st century AD. And so once again we read of God's just punishment for he was to give to Israel what they deserved. In chapter 8 is a great passage demonstrating the punishment fitting the crime. They play at religion and pay no real attention to holy days so they will lose the difference between day and night and their feast times will become times of sadness and mourning. They will not listen to the prophets that God sends to them and so there will be a famine in the land for the word of God and they will not know which way to go, they'll wander lost in darkness. They play the harlot chasing after other gods and so their young men and their young women will fall never to rise again. And in chapter 9 we turn to the last of the visions of judgment when Amos sees the altar. 
the altar was the place where God and men meet. It was the place where the sacrifice is offered for the forgiveness of sins. It was the place where the wrath of God was visited upon the sacrifice. It was a place of forgiveness, but it was also a place of justice and punishment. And on this case, there will be no escape. For when God strikes down the temple in chapter 9 and verse 1, not one of them shall escape. There is nowhere to hide from God, as verses 2 to 4 of chapter indicate to us. Wherever you care to go, God will be there and will bring them down. Be it to go down to Sheol, the place of the dead, or be it to climb up to heaven, be it to get to the top of Mount Carmel, or be it down to the bottom of the sea, it makes no difference. You can't run away from God. God will be there and God will judge them and not one of them will escape. Because there is no escape from the creator of all the earth. He who rules over the whole world and brings earthquakes and volcanoes and the floods of Nile and the droughts that follow and the rain and the tsunamis, there is no escape from the Lord of heaven and earth. And as there is no escape, nowhere to escape, there is nowhere to escape from the Lord of nations. Israel wanted to be like the other nations. And it would seem that their special relationship with God was coming to an end. He brought Israel out of Egypt in the time of Moses. But he is the Lord of all the nations. And so he also brought other nations to Palestine, the Cushites, the Philistines. The, he brought up the Syrians. from. He, he's the one who controls the nations. Israel is not the only nation that God ruled over and settled in the promised land. And just when you think that Israel is being completely disowned by God, there's a little qualification that happens at the end of chapter 8. If you turn there with me to page 932, the verse 8 actually just changes things. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground except I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Amos is a great book. I hope you've enjoyed reading Amos. I hope you've enjoyed studying it week by week as we've come here. But it's pretty depressing, isn't it? Chapter after chapter of judgment and punishment and sin and wickedness. It's not what you call happy church going or happy Bible reading. But just at the end, there is the light. And that 8b, the second half of verse 8, is the beginning of the flicker of light. Not the whole, except I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. It's not going to be the end. There will be something more. The Bible does go beyond Amos. There's a whole few hundred pages yet to go because if you only had Amos up to chapter 8, I suspect the Bible had come to an end there. Israel was the failed experiment of God. End of story. But verse 8, there's more yet to happen. Not much, mind you, for the nation of Israel is going to be shaken like a sieve and sprinkled all over the world so that the nation as a nation is not going to exist anymore. 
It's going to be just dispersed and scattered across the face of the universe. And the sinners within Israel are the ones that will be destroyed by the sword of the Lord. The sinners being those who doubt the prophet's word, who will believe that the end is coming. Verse 10, all sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, disaster shall not overtake us. But in that promise about the house of Jacob not being utterly destroyed, and in that promise of shaking the nation over all the earth, we find the promise of restoration and this small glimmer of hope of salvation finishes the book on actually a wonderfully positive note from verses 11 to 15 for God is going to raise up the kingdom of David once more the house of David was in the southern empire the southern kingdom of Judah around Jerusalem Israel was in the north around Samaria Israel is going to be destroyed, but Judah will be saved. Judah is not to be destroyed. Just remember, friends, there were 12 tribes in one nation. Ten tribes go off to be the northern nation, and they carry the name Israel with them. So Israel sometimes means the ten northern tribes, sometimes means the whole 12 tribes. The ten northern are going. They're the lost tribes of Israel. They didn't arrive in North America for the Mormons to find. They are lost. They are scattered all over the ancient world as the Assyrian Empire tended to do with the nations they conquered. The two southern tribes of Judah centred on Jerusalem under the kingdom of David. And the, 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 he says in verse 11, in that day... I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Here is the hope of the Old Testament, that in the face of the punishment and the dismemberment of the nation Israel, God will still save his remnant his little group of people. God will still save and keep his promise to David of building the nation around him, around his dynasty. And being God's kingdom, being David's kingdom, he will rule over all the nations in the kingdom for David's kingdom will bring priests to other nations. And so the prophecy of verse 12, that he will possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. Once again, God's people will be the nation that rules the world and will bring the blessings of God on all the other nations. It was this promise, which you and I might read past very quickly, but it was this promise that the council of the Christians in Jerusalem remembered in Acts 15, in the last of our readings this morning, our New Testament reading when they were discussing the place of Gentiles in the kingdom of God. For the Jews were very conscious that they alone were the people of God, but when the gospel got preached to the Samaritans, well, we don't like Samaritans, are they going to be part of the kingdom of God? And then they were preached to the Gentiles, well, we certainly don't want them, and so are they going to be part of the kingdom of God? The pressure was on. For many of the non-Jews had become Christians and some Jews felt it was wrong. 
other non-Jews thought, well, now it's all right provided they become Jews. And so the council met to discuss this. And it's the Old Testament prophet Amos that they remembered, who looked to the day of David when God would, God's people would come from all nations. And so the council of Jerusalem welcomed in the nations into the kingdom of God, welcomed all of us who are not of Jewish ancestry. If it wasn't for Amos chapter 9, remembered in Acts 15, we in a sense would need to be Jewish in order to be Christian. Whereas the Old Testament was looking forward to the inclusion of the nations beyond Israel, beyond Judah. And the New Testament Christians remembered this prophecy as well as others to bring about the inclusion of the Gentiles. And when David's kingdom would be established, he was told in Amos verses nine, uh, chapter 9, verses 13 to 15, that all the promises of the promised land would come true. Unbounded prosperity and peace, continuous cropping, cities and vineyards and gardens and fruit forever. So Amos finishes his wonderfully positive passage. The book as a whole ends on an incredibly positive note of the future. Having had chapter after chapter of how down things were going and how bad they were going and how worse they would become, right at the end there's this little hope for the future. That there's still a flag waving, there's still a story yet to be told, there's still an event yet to come, which of course we know in the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Old Testament is a profoundly unfinished book. It speaks of what God is doing to Israel, but it always is speaking what he is going to do in the future in a way that the New Testament fulfills. So what's the take-home message of Amos for us in the church in Sydney nearly 3,000 years later? Well, there are three themes that we've seen throughout the book over the last few weeks and that I would remind you of them now to kind of sum and pull it all together. Firstly, the revelation of the Lord God, Yahweh. That's why we have Lord in capital letters there because we don't know how to spell Yahweh and we don't know how to write it into modern English, but that's his name, the revelation of Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth. He's the prime actor in the narrative it's all about his action of what he's about to do. And I'd suggest to you, as you'll see on the outline there, in the yellow outline, six things that he's about to be doing, or six things about him, rather. Firstly, he is the creator of all things. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth, in the waters of the world, he rules as he has made everything. Second thing about him is that he rules over the nations as well. There isn't one God for the Syrians and another God for the Philistines as if every nation has its own God. Yahweh is the one God of all nations. He is the one to whom all are answerable, whether they acknowledge him or not, whether they know him or not. He is the creator of the universe. He is the one God of all the world and all the nations are answerable to him. Which brings me to the third aspect of the Lord God we see in the book of Amos. That is, he rules history. 
He didn't simply create the world and sit back to see what would happen. He raises up nations and tears down nations. He moves people from one place to another and settles them there. He watches the sinfulness of the peoples and brings justice to bear on the worst of their excesses. And he chose Israel to be his nation and he held them particularly responsible for their failure to live as his nation. And he does all this as he does it. The fourth thing we see is that he reveals his plans by the prophets. Turn back in your Bibles, back to chapter 3 for a moment. There's that extraordinary little verse we came across as we worked our way through in verse 7 of chapter 3. It's page 926 if you were naughty enough to have closed your Bible and lost your place. Chapter 3, verse 7. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. It's not as if God is acting and we have to guess what he's doing. God is revealing by his prophets what he's doing. Everything he was doing is disclosed to us by his prophets. And so... That is why it is such a horrible judgment that falls upon Israel as we read today in chapter 8. In chapter 8, that terrible judgment of famine, not of famine for bread or for thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. For they will not know. They wanted to silence the prophets. They, they tell Amos to stop talking. They want to keep the message of God away from the people as our society does. I don't want you to read it now, but when you look at the From the Dean, when you get home or in the train en route about censorship, our society is incredibly censorious, especially about anyone who wants to speak for the truth of God. You just don't get that opportunity. I was in Victoria last about a month or so ago at a, a men's convention. Man after man came and said to me, thank you for St Andrew's Cathedral. We have never on the ABC ever seen a Christmas service which celebrated the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as we did last Christmas when we saw the ABC celebration of Christmas here. What they, they were pleased to hear the gospel, but they were astonished that it was the ABC where it could be heard. I mean, after all, it is our ABC, isn't it? Not. So, censorship is alive and well. Silence the prophets, because if you don't hear from the prophets, you don't hear from God. If you don't hear from God, you won't get any nasty messages, will you? And you won't get any nice ones either. For God, fifthly, rules by justice. Without the prophets teaching the way of the Lord, who will understand justice? And why God is punishing as he is? And who would repent and turn back and find forgiveness? Amos is full of terrible pictures of God's justice and even more terrible pictures of human sinfulness. Pictures that at times cause the prophet to cry out, Oh Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. But the ruling of God is always just and right. And the people have failed to love God as they should or their neighbours as themselves. And the people who are supposed to be God's people have not lived for him. 
but for themselves in their materialistic greed and in their corruption, lapping up luxury while others suffered in penury. Yet while God rules the world in justice, he also responds sixthly to plea for mercy. And so we saw last week in chapter 7 that twice this extraordinary statement that God relented and said, it shall not be. Of all the aspects of God, the creator and ruler of nations and the universe and history, who acts and rules in justice and righteousness, it's the openness to the pleas of his people for mercy that endears him most to us. For we are always desperately in need of mercy and forgiveness. And our God who reigns and who rules and who judges is our God who listens when we call out for pardon and forgiveness and mercy. So the first great theme that all runs all the way through Amos is God himself. We learn so much about him as we hear the secrets of his heart spelt out by the prophet. The second great theme is Israel. For God spoke by his prophet Amos into a specific historical situation and circumstance that is spelt out for us in chapter 1 verse 1 where it says, This happened during Uzziah king of Judah and in the days of Jeremiah the son of Joash king of Israel two years before the earthquake. It was in the middle of the 8th century when Jeroboam II was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And throughout the prophecy we saw the present blindness in the pride and arrogance of their affluence. If even a generation, if ever a generation had the resources to put into effect God's desire for his nation, this was the generation but instead of using their resources for good, instead of using their resources for God, they blinded themselves in their own self-confidence and security and assurance. They couldn't see the writing on the wall and they wouldn't listen to the prophet telling them that their end was coming upon them. They were so confident in themselves of their future. It's, I guess, that parallel that makes us feel Amos is so relevant to Sydney in the 21st century. For if ever there is a generation that's got the resources to do good and to serve God, it is this generation that we now live in. And if ever there's a generation that's done so little for anybody else and so little for the cause of God, it is this generation in which we live and the unbounded confidence and arrogance of the Australians, unaffected by the GFC. We are the, we are the economy that the rest of the world envies. What nonsense. For what Amos promised Israel is future destruction. It was so unbelievable for them they were so proud, they were so safe, they were so secure, self-assured. But the prophetic message, chapter after chapter in this book of Amos, is the judgment is coming 
The judgment is coming. You will be destroyed. And what's more, we know that it happened. For in 722 BC, the Assyrians came down into Israel and decimated. It destroyed Israel. It took its peoples and scattered them all over the Assyrian world empire at the time. And it took people from everywhere else it had conquered and dumped them into Israel. And so broke down nation after nation and in breaking down nation after nation destroyed completely forever the nation Israel. And that happened just 30 years. Just 30 years after Amos had spoken. I I know it's a sign of old age, but I'm reading obituaries more these days. You know, you go through different phases of age, don't you, when you stop playing sport and just start watching it, and then you find yourself in antique shops, and then you find yourself reading obituaries. I, I don't know what the next one is. Some of you might like to mention it to me. But I noticed in the obituaries of the last day or so, a man who's famous for his future predictions in the 1960s wrote a famous book about what's going to happen by 2000 and half of his predictions got right and I thought to myself well I can tell you what's going to happen in 50 years and I can get half right as well and anyway I won't be alive so it won't matter will it I mean making predictions about the future is a very iffy job isn't it who knows what the future holds and you hear what's going to happen in 30 years time and you think oh Yeah, well, it might or it mightn't, and that's about it. It might or it mightn't. It's when the weather forecasts tell us that you've got a 50% chance of rain tomorrow. I actually knew that before they spoke. (laughs) There's always a 50% chance, isn't there, in one sense of what you're saying. And So it was unbelievable in 750 that we would be destroyed totally, never to rise again in 722. But Amos said it would happen, and it did. And Judah? Judah was destroyed. The great Sennacherib came right down to the very gates of Jerusalem, having destroyed all the villages around about, all the towns. And he bottled up King Hezekiah in 705 in the city of Jerusalem. And for years they were, st- they were, they were, they were there starving inside the city. And it looked like Amos was wrong at that point because Jerusalem was not going to survive. And then strangely, astonishingly, the army of Assyria went home. The Greek historians give us one reason, Sennacherib give us another reason, the Bible gives us another reason, but they all agree that suddenly the siege of Jerusalem ceased for no apparent reason. And Jerusalem and Judah continued on when Israel had been destroyed by the Assyrians, just as Amos had predicted. But it's not only that they continued, that God had planned for the remnant who will survive the destruction, the house of David. This, of course, was extraordinary. But it's not just that. It was that this house of David would then sometime become the international restoration, that it would have influence and effect upon all the other nations, and that didn't happen. Not till the Lord Jesus came, the true son of David, the true king in God's kingdom, 
whose gospel of death and resurrection brought the kingdom of God to the nations, to the Gentiles, to those outside of Israel and Judah, that men and women all over the world started acknowledging the son of David as their personal Lord and Saviour, and that nations would start calling themselves Christian nations, nations who weren't part of Judah, weren't part of Israel, but would acknowledge the Messiah, the Christ. Which brings us to Amos' third theme, that is true religion. For true religion is not ritual, practices of temples, sacrifices, new moons, celebrations, fasts, feasts. Amos keeps denouncing these. This is not what God wants. In fact, this is what God hates. Anybody who can do this thing, it's easy enough to get people to learn how to bow and to scrape and to cross themselves and to bob the knee and to tug the forelock. It, you can get people to stand or sit or turn around or catch. It, 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 that's easy. That's got nothing to do with God. It's got to do with an exercise class. You can train chimps to do it, certainly parrots. The lighting of candles, the wearing of long robes of priests, the bowing, the scraping, the they aren't the way to love God and they aren't the way to love your neighbour. In fact, we are particularly distasteful to God when we play at religious observances while not loving our neighbour. True religion reflects the true character of God and so it's not ritual practices but justice and righteousness. As James wrote to the Christians, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is what the just judge of all the world wants. The righteous ruler of the nations wants his people that we would love justice and seek mercy, that we would love our neighbour as ourselves. It's the authenticity of living for God, not the phoniness of playing religious games that he wants for his people. And so, when they are not living that way, he sends his prophets to call for repentance. Chapter 5, repeatedly warn them to seek him, to seek the Lord while he may be found, while he is there, to seek the Lord and live. Not to seek after false religion that provides no protection, but seek the Lord himself, the giver and creator of life. For as chapter 7 illustrated, God relented of the judgment that he was going to bring upon his people in response to the plea of his prophet, Amos. And so we have every reason to expect that he will respond to our request for pardon and mercy when we are facing the righteous justice of God. We have even more reason to think so because we know of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection, assuring all who repent of forgiveness and new life. For such true religion comes through Jesus Christ, the Son of David, for it's only in him that the hope of Amos is fulfilled. The nation finally has its king and all the nations are brought into the blessings of God. It's in Jesus Christ, the son of David, that we come to life 
and life abundantly. It's in Jesus Christ that the judgment of God is finally dealt with. Sin it's dealt with. New life of eternity's riches comes to his people. Here is true religion. To repent and to believe that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection has brought us full forgiveness and to live the new life of righteousness and justice and mercy and kindness as a result of that. So Amos, it's a great book, it's a wonderful prophecy and it gets us ready for an even greater thing, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, his mercy, his forgiveness that comes with his justice, his righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word by your prophet. We thank you for Amos, even though he suffered such persecution in his own time, for bringing your message of judgment and of salvation to the nation that ignored him and rejected him. We thank you, Father, for the record of this call to repentance and the promise of forgiveness. We thank you that you were working your purposes out through him, bringing that sinful nation to an end and setting for us there a terrible example of what happens to injustice when you rule in judgment. And yet we also thank you, Father, for bringing your purposes out in sending your Son into this world to fulfill what Amos prophesied, to bring all nations into your kingdom, that we who live far away in a different age, in a different nation, in a different country, might acknowledge your Son as our King, our Lord, our Saviour, and might know the forgiveness and pardon that he is one for us. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father. And we would pray for our sick nation and our very sinful city. And beg your mercy, please, Father, that you will hold off your day of judgment, that the gospel of Jesus may be preached here, that you would send your spirit into the hearts and minds of our fellow citizens, our family members, that they may yet repent and come to know your forgiveness and your mercy. That you would pardon, please, Father, and that you would use the enormous gifts and blessings that you have given to us, that we as a church and we as a city might do good for other people, might give and be generous for the needs elsewhere, might take the gospel message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. So bless us, Father, as we've listened to your prophet and help us to live not as those who have fallen under your judgment, but those who have received the blessings of your forgiveness. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.